since it is the Christmas season, I want us to take this Sunday and Christmas Eve to ponder the, the birth of our Savior, which we, we love to do. But as you can see, the, the title of my, my sermon today is A Story Within the Story. And I'll explain what I mean by that. We all, well, I shouldn't say we all, but most of us know the story of Rudolph the, Rain, the Red-Nosed Reindeer. But I want you to imagine if you only knew a part of that story. Suppose you only knew about his friends who wouldn't let him play in any reindeer games. He got bullied. What if that's all you knew? What a sad story that would be. We would be left wondering whatever happened to poor Rudolph. Did he later turn to drinking? <laughs> Did he come back to get revenge on the reindeer bullies? Or did he one-up them by marrying the richest, most beautiful reindeer in the North Pole? But we know that that story is only a part of the, the bigger story. We know that at one point they thought he was a loser, but in the end, all of the reindeer loved him and shouted with glee that he would go down in history. I wonder if sometimes the Christmas story doesn't get so isolated from the greater story that we miss the meaning. I think too many times we, we love to gaze into the manger at Jesus to sing about the silent night when all was calm and all was bright. We serenade the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And, and maybe we forget to connect the story of Christmas with the greater story that God tells in the entire Bible. I don't think we do it intentionally. And I don't think true believers leave it there, but I think sometimes we, we sort of leave baby Jesus in the manger, put him back in the crash until next year, kind of like a, a um, toy that's kind of tucked away like a Barbie doll and forgotten about until some later time. So this morning I want us to think afresh about the Christmas story. Many of you have read it over and over again and as we look at it this morning, I hope that it will be a blessing and the Lord will speak to you in some small or large life-changing way. But we're going to look at Matthew 1 and 2 this morning. Now, let me remind you that the four gospel writers all knew the same information about Jesus. It wasn't as though I used to sort of describe it this way. They were all describing the life of Jesus from a different street corner. This is how I saw the accident. When in fact, I've come to realize that that's not a good way to think of the Gospels because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all knew the, the basic material. They, they had been with Jesus. They knew about his birth. They knew about his life. They knew about his death. But each one of them had a specific purpose. They had a, a reason why they left out or why they included what they did. So, for example, only Matthew and Luke describe the birth of Jesus. Only Luke tells us anything about the boyhood of Jesus. Why? All of them tell us a great deal about the sufferings of Jesus. In fact, Mark, one-third of his book is about the Passion Week of Christ. Almost all of the gospel writers spend an enormous amount of time describing that last week of Christ and his crucifixion and resurrection. So much so that it wouldn't be good to call the Gospels biographies of Jesus. In fact, one writer said that it would be better to describe them as 
introductions to the passion story. And so the reality is the Christmas story is never really meant to be celebrated in isolation to God's great story of salvation. So I want us to look through Matthew chapters 1 and 2. We'll work our way through it this morning. And I want us to primarily focus on three things about Jesus. Number one, the people of Jesus. And then we're going to talk about, I'm sorry, not, not the people, the kingship of Jesus, followed by the kinfolk of Jesus, and then finally, the constant rejection of Jesus, because that's the bigger story. So let's start in Matthew chapter 1. I want us to pray, and we're going to begin by looking at the kinfolk of Jesus. It's really under, important to understand the people that he's related to. So let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask you to speak to us as we think about the story of Jesus within the greater story. May you open our eyes and give us insight. May our lives be changed as we think afresh about the birth of Jesus over 2,000 years ago. Thank you that your word is alive and powerful. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start by talking about the kinfolk of Jesus because the story of Jesus doesn't begin in the Gospels. It doesn't even begin in the Old Testament. It begins before eternity passed. When Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit together communed and came up with what we, we have as this plan of salvation. The Bible tells us that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. And so it was God's design to, to speak into existence this great universe that would serve as a sort of a backdrop for the stage of planet Earth on which God would unfold the plan of salvation, the plan of redemption and through Christ. And so as we, as we begin to read the Bible, we see that God created us and we know the story of Adam and Eve that they fell into sin and brought a curse and corruption to the earth. And this explains the, 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 the way earth operates. We're fallen people in a fallen world. We're all destined to die. But it was always God's design in the Old Testament that he would send the Savior. And so one of the primary ways that he did that was by selecting a people, the kinfolk of Jesus. You remember that after Noah's Ark and the people spread out on the earth. We read the story of Abraham and how God had selected Abraham of all the nations of the earth. He appears to this individual named Abraham who didn't come from a Christian home. The Bible says his family was idolaters and God revealed himself to Abraham and he made great promises to him. But he said, it is from you and from your seed, I will bless the entire earth. And so at that point began this process of the coming of Jesus through the kinfolk known as the nation of Israel. As time went on in the history of Israel, you remember that King David received further revelation about the coming of Jesus. King David was, called, was told that one of your descendants will reign over the house of Israel forever. Now, it would be one thing to be told your child's going to be a king, but it's another thing to be told but he's going to be a king forever. That doesn't make sense. How can my kid be a king forever? He's going to die. And so the Bible tells us that David, realizing that one of his descendants would be king forever, figured that God would have to raise his son from the dead. And so as the, the story progressed in the Old Testament, we recognize that God would send a descendant of Abraham who would be a descendant of David who would die and rise from the dead. As Matthew writes... Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience 
trying to persuade them that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the promised Messiah. Just by way of a, a practical application, those of you who may be of Jewish descendant or perhaps have Jewish friends, one of the things that I've found really intriguing is to ask them this question. Why don't you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Help me understand. I'm asked as a pastor on a regular basis, why don't Jewish people believe Jesus is the Messiah? And what I've found for the most part, not a single one of them has even had a substantial answer. They've said, we just know he isn't. And I said, well, how will you know that he is? Who is this Messiah? Isn't it something that you would have to know from the Old Testament? And the best I've gotten is, you know, you have a good point there. And so picture Matthew in the first century trying to persuade both new Jewish converts as well as those who are still exploring that Jesus is indeed the Messiah that God promised. So let's start in Matthew 1, verses 1 through 16. And all we're going to do is briefly gaze at the genealogy of Christ. And the reason why Matthew put this here is to show that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah who had to be a descendant of Abraham and to be a descendant of David. Now, what he structures it, and this is kind of cool, he structured it in groups of 14. There are more than 42 people that preceded, went from Abraham to Joseph, but David, the, 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 the Hebrew name David, Jews were fond of numbers, and the, the three letters in the name Dawid add up to 14, and so it's been suggested that that's why Matthew, for memory's sake, would include the sets of 14 from Abraham to the birth of Jesus. As we're going through here, one of the things that I find interesting is that while, while the Jewish people were a, a promised people, they also were a people with problems, just like us. So let's briefly look at this, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, he's who he claimed to be. To Abraham was born Isaac, and we know that great story of at age 100, the miraculous birth of Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and his brothers. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron, Ram, and to Ram, Abinadab, and Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, verse 5, Ruth, Obed, and then Jesse. It isn't worth passing by that Tamar was not well known for her morals. And then as we, as we pause at David, it says, to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Wait, what? You mean that, that you know, the one where David committed adultery? Yeah, the Bible is, is, is unblushing in, in its willingness to say, this is what life is really like. It's not a bunch of perfect people. It's a bunch of fallen people. And yet, even in the midst of this, the Bible tells us, as David repented of his sin, that he became a man after God's own heart. And that gives me hope that you don't have to have it all together and be some, some perfect person to be part of the purposes of God. And so, from here, we go from David down to the deportation of Babylon in verse 11. And then, in verse 12, we'll go down to actual... Mary and Joseph. It says, from the deportation of Babylon to Jeconiah with Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, come down with me to verse 16, to Jacob was born the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called the Messiah. 
So we, we learn as we think about the kinfolk of Jesus that he came from a promised people. Now, John chapter 1 says he came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. But as many of us who do receive him, we, we read that God has given to us the authority, the privilege to become a child of God. And if we were to ask ourselves, why is that? Why won't Jewish people accept Christ if, if they're the promised people? Well, there's two reasons. One is because of their stubborn refusal to accept the gospel, their unwillingness to choose Christ. But Romans 11 also says this to Gentiles. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed about this mystery that a partial hardening has happened to the nation of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And I thank God for that. The first time I read the story of the, the, the Syrophoenician woman when Jesus said, I can't give the children's bread to the dogs. And she says, well, even dogs get crumbs. And Jesus goes, because of your faith. And I thought to myself, wow, not only did God send his son, but he sent him to the Jews. And here am I, a Gentile. And God invites me, amen, even me, a Gentile, to come to him. But now we're going to focus not just on his promised people in the kinship, but actually his parents. Verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was, now think about this phrase, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now we know from Luke the background of Gabriel, Hail Mary, but who found her to be with child? Imagine that bitter day when Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant. You know, we, we write away in a manger. Joseph wanted to go away in his anger. We, we, we sing, who is he in yonder stall? But Joseph's thinking, who is he, Mary? Quit your stalling. Imagine the, the, the trauma of being told, Joe, it's not what it looks like. You, you, you have to trust me. And how he wrestled with God. And I want you to notice that verse 19 is a wonderful way that we ought to treat other people. Because to Joseph's knowledge, Mary had been unfaithful. This would, just, this would be a disgrace. Be like your fiancé being pregnant from another man. Disgraceful, and yet look at Joseph's gracious way that he treats her. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man. This doesn't mean he was a great person. It means he was a forgiven sinner who was trying to do what's right. He didn't want to disgrace her, but desired to put her away secretly. Some things might be true that you know about others, but not necessary to share with others. It's a wonderful reminder for us to treat others with mercy because James chapter 2 says, judgment will be merciless to those who show no mercy. But when he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Look at this beautiful verse. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And some of you know that the, the Hebrew name Jesus, Yeshua, it's just the word Joshua. It's not some secret new name that no one ever had. But Hebrew people put significance in the meaning of names. And the meaning of the word Yeshua is Jehovah saves. So call his name Jehovah saves. Why? For it is he who will save his people from their sins. 
I just want you to stop and think about that for a moment. That when we look at Jesus in the manger, think of the great story. Paul summed it up beautifully in 1 Timothy 1. He said, this is a trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In fact, you remember what, when, when the angels appeared to the shepherds, they said, we have good news of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Don't ever forget. Don't leave Jesus in the manger. Don't leave him on the cross, but see him as a Savior. And the sad thing is that most of the world doesn't see the need for a Savior. We offer them a Savior, and they scoff at that. A Savior from what? I often ask people, have you ever been saved by a lifeguard? And they go, no. I say, why not? Weren't you ever around one? No, I didn't need one. And we live in a broken world right now, especially in our culture, where people see no need for a Savior. What do you mean, save me from my sins? And so this is why we need to pray that the Spirit of God will bring conviction upon people. And as they begin to feel the weight of their sin and the judgment that's coming, then they'll flee to Calvary to find a Savior. In fact, Charles Spurgeon used to say it this way, there's no point in trying to heal people at Calvary until we wound them at Sinai. And so it's important that we keep the Ten Commandments before our culture. The Ten Commandments were never given to say, if you do these, you're going to go to heaven. The Ten Commandments were a mirror to say, you're not going to heaven apart from a Savior. And so as we ponder that and we think deeply about what a wonderful gift it is, that Jesus came to save us. Now notice he came to save us from our sins. That little word from is important. He didn't come to save us in our sins. He came to save us from our sins. And there's a threefold progression of that. Number one, he saves us from the penalty of our sins. Some of you have not yet been saved from the penalty of your sin. And I, 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 I shudder to think what awaits you. When you leave this world apart from Christ, the Bible says you will endure the unending wrath of God, day and night tormented forever. That's not a fun subject. When Jesus bore our sins on the cross, when you come to him as a savior, he forgives you not only from the penalty of sins, but then he begins to set in motion a saving us from the power of sin, that transforming sanctifying work that God begins. He changes our heart. He gives us new affections, new desires, a new sense that, that I want to follow Jesus, a new sense that I want to change. And, and that's why we keep gathering and keep reading the Bible and reminding each other and praying that we will indeed not only say, oh, Jesus saved me from my sins in its penalty, but pray for me that Jesus will save me and sanctify me so I'll become more and more like him. But that doesn't even stop there because one day he will save us not only from the penalty and from the power, but ultimately from the presence of sin. There will come a day, Philippians chapter 3 says, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for what? A savior to do what? To transform our body into conformity with his glorious body. What a great day that'll be, won't it? When this dreaded remaining sin in us is removed. That's the only reason we're unhappy. The Bible says when the, when, the, when the new heavens and new earth come, there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. The former things are all passed away. What a day it'll be when Jesus saves us from the very presence of sin. Second Peter chapter 3 says, we, we look for a new heaven 
and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that righteousness will dwell within us because the Lord Jesus has transformed us. Meantime, we go through life bearing the albatross of the flesh, knowing that even on our finest moment, oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? And we continue to experience that. So what a great verse. As you see Jesus in that manger, keep it in the story. He came to save us from our sins. Keep reading. Verse 22. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying. Now, before we look at this prophecy, I want to remind those of you who are growing in grace, what a wonderful confirmation that we have to, to, to explain to others why we believe the Bible is the Word of God. How can you believe the Bible is the Word of God? You've got the Koran, you've got all these other books out there. Well, I'll tell you one of the reasons I do is because there are 300 predictions in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ. Nobody can contest that they were written years before Jesus of Nazareth. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls that include the entire Old Testament. And the entire Old Testament, some of these scrolls date back hundreds of years before Christ, have 300 predictions. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but I dare you to predict the next three Super Bowl winners let alone the next 300 Super Bowl, well, at, the astronomical improbability of someone fulfilling 300 predictions. And those of you who, who are new to the faith, explore them. What wonderful promises we have from God. And this is one of them. In Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah confronted King Ahaz, and, and, and he told Ahaz, you don't have to be afraid of these two kings. And he said, ask the Lord for a sign. Behold, this is the sign that the Lord will give you. A virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, which in, which in Hebrew, Emmanuel means God with us. And just recently, those ladies who were here got to hear an encouraging word from Cheryl Vasso on that very message that God is with us and that little preposition with us. And I remind you that in order for God to be with us, we have to understand several other prepositions. Number one, that God is over us, that he is the creator. Romans chapter 1 tells us that we're living on a planet full of people who do not want God over them. Romans chapter 1 says, even though men know God, they don't honor him as God. They're not thankful. They're deliberate in their disobedience. The Bible says that men do not want God in their knowledge and God gives them over. But deep in their soul, they know one day they'll stand before God. You know that. Romans chapter 1 tells us that God has put it within us. And that one day, even though men know that the things they're doing are worthy of death, they not only do them, but they give hearty approval to others. So this God who is over us, who created us, to whom we answer, in his mercy, decided that he would come and be God instead of us. When Jesus hung on that cross, he took my sin. He, he, he hung there instead of me so that I could be forgiven. And because of that, he can now be God with us, God in us. And that same Savior who hung on that cross is the same Savior who's with us right now. So whatever you're going through this Christmas, remember Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. 
whether it's sickness or sorrow or pain or suffering or family troubles or financial troubles, that same Jesus who came out of the ground, he said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he said, and lo, I'm with you always. And those of you, I thank God for so many of you that are doing ministry and you go, wow, getting involved in people's lives is messy. I always laugh when pastors go, sheep stink. I, I don't like that. You know why I don't like that? Because it's, 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 it's forgetting. So do shepherds. We all stink. And in the mess of trying to help people grow and change and witnessing and rejection, remember that Jesus said, all authority is given to me and I'm with you always. So don't be discouraged. If you're not seeing anything happening, don't give up. I've prayed for a friend's son. Many of you prayed for my son just the other day. For years, probably 10 years we've been praying for a son. Gloriously transform. Gloriously transform. Don't give up. God is with us. Joseph rose from his sleep and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and he took her as his wife and he kept her a virgin. Now, now notice this, until. It does not say he kept her a virgin perpetually for world without end, amen, amen. Until she gave birth to a son. Jesus had brothers and sisters. Now, you may have come from a church that teaches otherwise. Look into that. They didn't even start teaching that until somewhere in the 1800s that Mary was a perpetual virgin. But that's not what the Bible says. Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. So we've, we've just kind of had a, a, a big look at the kinfolk of Jesus. Now I want to focus on the kinship or the kingship of Jesus. Let's, let's ponder how Matthew switches to this idea of Jesus as king. Now, he's already dropped a little seed in there, right? He said, look, Jesus is a descendant of David. And we all know David was the king. And we all know that God promised David that one of his descendants would be king. In fact, don't, don't, don't lose that. Jesus was born to be a king. In fact... It shouldn't go without noting that when, when, when the angel Gabriel appeared to, to Mary and he said, Hail Mary, you found favor with God. We get all excited about the, oh, blessed Mary, favor with God. He said to her, your child will be great and he will be called the son of the highest one and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Israel forever. And there will come a day, as the songwriter said, that Jesus will reign wherever the sun doth its successive journeys run. His kingdom shines from shore to shore while moons shall wax and wane no more. But, but what is it about this kingship of Jesus? It, it didn't start as born in a, a royal palace. But notice chapter 2. He says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now, many of you know this story. Some of you don't. You're like, oh, is this the one about we three kings? Well, yes, sort of, but it doesn't say there were three kings. It just says they bought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It doesn't mean two of them weren't carrying the myrrh. But who are, the, who are these magi? Well, from the east would have been probably Babylon. And so living in Babylon were some Jewish people who still had their scriptures. And these wise men, which was sort of a combination of astrologers, 
fortune tellers, some of them got hold of the scriptures and they began to read the scriptures that one day God would send a king. In fact, some have suggested that the prophecy in Numbers that was given to Balaam when he said a star has risen, that they may have read that prophecy and then doing their astrology, they saw this unusual star in the east. Now, that journey from Babylon to Judea was not a quick Uber ride. That was a long and grueling trip up through the Fertile Crescent. Could have taken an extremely long time. And so many have suggested that if you have a manger scene, get the wise men out of there. Because these guys probably are showing up now when Jesus could perhaps have been two years old. And we don't know exactly what they were living in, but it says they came into the house. Now you're like, I thought they were poor. How could they afford a house? Who knows? Maybe, maybe they were renting. <laughs> but after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, they show up and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw the star in the east and, and oh, wait a minute, we've come to worship him. Who worships a baby? Now you've heard my comments on that. Too many Americans. But we'll, we'll talk about that on another time. But listen, in order to, to see the setting of this, you have to know a little bit about the background of Herod. Herod was a messed up, twisted dude. Herod killed many of his own family. Herod drowned his sons. Herod was so paranoid, even though he was an incredible builder, and, and there are still things that he built. Years ago when I went to Israel, we went up to the top of Masada, and Herod had a little vacation place there, and some of the original paint was still on the wall. I'm like, that's better than MAB. That's better than Sherwin-Williams. Herod is often known for being a great architect, but he's also remind, remembered as a, as, a, as a maniac. In fact, the, the Greek word for son is huios. The Greek word for pig is hus. And there was a first century saying that said, I'd rather be his hus than his huios. I'd rather be his pig than his kid. Because anybody who he even had the slightest suspicion who was interested in his throne, he put them to death. And so as Herod hears this, this idea that there's another king, verse 3 says, when King Herod heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why would you be troubled that the Messiah has arrived? And gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them, where was the Messiah to be born? So they get out their scrolls. They're like, that's a great question. Where did the Bible say he would be born? Well, here. We read in Micah 5.2, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And this is a quote from, from the book of Micah. You, Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, land of Judah, you are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler, a king, but then it doesn't say, a king who will rule with a rod, but a king who will shepherd my people. Isn't it interesting? No matter how much we ponder Jesus, there's, there's unfathomable riches of his fullness we all receive. Jesus is a king, but he's also a shepherd, a gentle, kind 
compassionate shepherd. The great shepherd, the Bible calls him, the great shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. And that same baby Jesus who was worshipped as a child, if you're a Christian, he's your shepherd. So what are you worried about? Well, I don't have enough. I thought David said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Well, I'm tired. Well, he, he makes me lie down in green pastures. My soul is all upset. He restores my soul. Well, I'm going through a hard time. You don't understand. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and staff comfort me. Yeah, but there's a lot of people that hate us now as Christians. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. A cup runs over. Well, I don't know what's going to happen. My loved ones or me, what if I die of COVID? Well, surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And you'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So what a wonderful truth to be reminded that our King Jesus was promised to be a shepherd. So, Herod, verse 7, says, he secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. Hey, how, hey, hey you wise guys, come here a minute. We'll, we'll, you know, fill me in a little bit. Help me understand. One, we, we, how, how do you know? And it says, and he sent to Bethlehem and said, go make careful search for the child. And when you've found him, Report to me. Now talk about a, a bold-faced lie that I may come and worship him too. And so Matthew begins to introduce us for the, for the first time to the ominous conflict that would come in the life of Jesus. The very first hint that all was not going to be calm, that all was not going to be bright, that Jesus would not grow up and just live happily ever after. And so we see this introduction to the conflict that Jesus endured his entire life. The Bible says he came into the world and the world was not, was made by him, but the world didn't know him. The light shined in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome him. Jesus Christ was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, hated by the world, hounded by the devil, constantly on his left and his right, the evil one from the day he was born was trying to destroy him. You'll remember that great event in the ministry of Jesus when he went out into the wilderness. And as the second Adam, he endured the vicious and painful temptations of the evil one. But unlike Adam, who couldn't sustain those temptations and fell, the Lord Jesus Christ was in all points tempted as we are. And in the midst of all those conflict, he never fell. He proved himself to be a faithful and merciful Savior. But let's look at this conflict because we as Christians have to understand that if our Savior endured conflict, why would we think that we won't? How could we be so silly as to think, just witness by your life, be a nice person, and then all will go well for you? Jesus said, the world hated me, and I'm sending you to, to be a witness for me. And if they hated me, they're going to hate you. John said, for this reason, the world doesn't know us because they don't know him. They march to a different beat. They're on a different frequency. What's important to them is not important to us. In fact, God said in the Bible that the things that are highly esteemed by men 
are often despicable in the sight of God. And so as we enter into the, the conflict of Jesus, let's, let's think about how we're not alone. Let's think about people in Syria, Lebanon, North Korea, all over Africa, the Middle East, Christians who are suffering enormous conflict because of Christ. And so as, as we read, let's, let's pick it up here in verse 9. Having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they'd seen in the east, which went on before them until it came and stood over the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house, and they saw the child with Mary, his mother. What an extraordinary event that would have been. Here's Mary maybe holding baby Jesus in her arms. And three strangers, wealthy men, knock and enter and come and bow down. They worshiped him. The Greek word worship is to bow down, to, to fall down in the presence of Jesus. Think about that. In the presence of a little baby, they fell down and they opened their treasures, gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Will you allow me for a moment to, to just briefly talk about dreams? There are some in our culture who absolutely are certain that God only can speak one and only way, and that's through the Bible. He will not, cannot, and does not speak in any other way. But may I remind you and encourage you to consider that in the Muslim world right now, Muslims are coming to Christ by the thousands in many, many different Middle Eastern countries. But many of them are prompted to begin to see Christ because of a dream. A dream in which somehow Jesus is a part of that dream. And they don't get converted by that dream. You're converted by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing. But those dreams of Christ begin to, to, to prompt them to seek and explore and find Christians and read scripture and give their lives to Christ. Let me caution you that we ought not to put too much stock in dreams. It may just be you had too much pizza. And I would not encourage you to get your primary direction from your feelings or from prophetic utterances or from a dream that you had. But at the same time, let's not put God in a box and say, God can't do anything like that anymore. What a wonder of his grace that he warned Joseph in a dream. So the conflict only heightens, verse 13. They departed, and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And, and you can smell the sulfur here, right? What, what is prompting Herod to kill this baby? Obviously driven by Satan. Not only was it his personal jealousy, but from the get-go, we saw in Revelation 12, as, as the child is born to the woman, the dragon is waiting to devour the child. And don't forget that that same devil who tried to kill Jesus and still hates him, hates us. And we ought not to think that he's a little horned guy with a red tail and a pitchfork. He's a powerful being. And 1 Peter 5 says we need to be sober and vigilant. We need to watch and pray because our adversary, the devil, 
prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And the last thing we want to do is think, well, that couldn't be us. The last thing we want to do is, is elevate ourselves and say, not me, Jesus, you and I, I got your back. Lest Jesus look at us like he did to Peter and say, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. You better watch and pray. And one of the things I've tried to incorporate in my prayers, and I'll ask you to pray for me, but throw it in your prayers as well, is Jesus wasn't kidding when he said, pray on a daily basis. Give me my daily bread and let me not enter temptation. Oh, how many times we stumble and fall because we're not watching, we're not praying, we're not cautious, and we're not prepared for the onslaughts of evil. At the death of Herod, that was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt did I call my son. Brief comment here. This is a quote from, he, from Hosea chapter 12, or chapter 11. Crazy. If you're reading Hosea chapter 11, God says of the nation of Israel, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And we all go, well, I, I know what that was. That, that's, that's Moses, right? That's when God called the nation of Israel. But through the Spirit of God, Matthew was shown that this also was a prediction of Christ. One of the things that's interesting is to see how the New Testament authors quoted the Old Testament. The most important thing is that it always pointed to Christ. So let's see what happens in the end of this conflict and then we'll press home some, own, some thoughts for today. We've seen the, the kinfolk of Jesus. We've seen the kingship of Jesus. And now as we look at this conflict, verse 16 says, when Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi, he was enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem. Now there's a lot of debate over how many children that was. Some have suggested just a handful, others have suggested there were quite a few, but even if it was three or four, what a terrible tragedy to have someone show up at your door and take and slaughter your child. Unspeakable pain. Sometimes people can't get their arms around that. How can there be a God who allows all this to happen? God isn't causing this, but God is unfolding His purposes on planet Earth. And because we live in a sin-cursed, fallen world, none of us are promised to be kept from any personal pain. In fact, in the midst of personal pain, our hope is Romans 8.28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him. But let me remind you that He doesn't promise that you and I will understand in this life and so those of you who can't make sense of your pain, maybe you were abused or molested as a child, and, and you're hoping that somehow it'll all come together in this world. God never said it'll all come together in this world. Paul said, now we see in a glass darkly, and then face to face. We cling to Jesus, we hold on to his promises, and one day it'll all make sense. Let me remind you what Jesus said to Peter when Peter refused to wash his feet. Jesus said, what I do, you don't understand now, but you'll understand later. And I wonder if any of these families that lost a child were believers and how easy it would have them been for them to get bitter at God. What kind of a God would let my child be killed? I wonder if some of them became believers through this. Put yourself 
in the midst of their pain. And so we read in verse 16, when he slaughtered the children from two years and under, verse 17, then that which has been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because there were no more. Can I remind you that being a Christian, we're called to drink a cup of sorrow that the world doesn't have to drink. The Bible says that for the Christian, weeping will last for a night, but a shout of joy will come in the morning. Some of you, through your tears, through your sorrows, I urge you to cling to Jesus, to realize there's great room in the Bible for lamenting. More of the Psalms are written out of sorrow than they are out of heavenly sunshine. And sometimes all we can do is weep, but not without hope. All we need to do is not have answers for our brothers and sisters, but come alongside and weep with those who weep, but not without hope. But finally, verse 19, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother. Go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and he took the child and his mother, and he came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the regions of Galilee. And he came and resided in a city called Nazareth. Jesus, the Nazarene. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene. Location location, location. If ever there was a place where you didn't want real estate, it was Nazareth. Nazareth was, and I hate to say it, but it's the, the God-honest truth according to statistics, is the New Jersey of, of the promised land. <laughs> Don't be hating. Don't be hating. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm from New Jersey. But it just is, it, it, it's despised. And I, I know you want, that's not right, but it's a despised place. Now, now listen, don't miss this as we close. It says, they resided in Nazareth, and it was purposeful. They selected the most despised place to live. Why? That that which was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, those of you who are learning how to study the Bible, you go, oh, thanks, Pastor Tom. Isaiah 7, 14, that's the virgin birth. Micah 5, 2, born in Bethlehem. Got it. The one in Jeremiah voice. Oh, um, Pastor, which one is he shall be called a Nazarene? There isn't one. There's no verse in the Old Testament that says he shall be called a Nazarene. See, the Bible's not true. Or is it? Prior to this, each time Matthew quoted, he said that was spoken by the prophet, singular, because he was referring to a specific text. This time he says that which was spoken through the prophets, plural. It's not a singular text. It's a straightforward principle. He came from Nazareth. Therefore, he will be despised. 
And I wonder as we close this morning, if you and I can keep the story of Christmas within the greater story of Christ the Savior, who was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Do you love Jesus? I'll tell you why I love him. Not because he was born in a manger, but because he hung on that cross to save me from what I deserve. And because he hung on that cross to save me from what I deserve, he asks you and me to do something. He says, whoever is ashamed of me in this generation, I will be ashamed of him before my father. But whoever confesses me, and I think what he has in mind there is to become a believing follower. Whoever unashamedly says, yes, in the I don't come hell or high water if you don't like me, Deal with it if you don't like me because of Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather be identified with Jesus and have the hatred of the world. I'd rather be found by my Savior than loved by this world. And so as we ponder the Christmas story, may I encourage you to go deeper. Go over and say, I'm going to do this with Luke chapters 1 through 2. I want to learn more about Jesus and his kin. I want to learn more about Jesus and his kingship. I want to learn more about Jesus and his conflict. And ultimately, you're going to learn a lot more about Jesus at his coming. Amen? If you're not ready, you better get ready, and you can get ready this morning. Just give your life to Christ. It's not complicated. Jesus' favorite expression was, come. Come as you are. You don't have to clean yourself up. Come with your mess. Come to me, Jesus said, all who are weary and heavy laden. Some of you are just tired, tired of life. Some of you are weighed down with guilt. Come and I'll give you rest. Some of you can't seem to find the answer. You got everything you thought you needed and you're still empty. It's because what you need is Jesus. That's why he said, come to me. If any man is thirsty, let him come. Augustine said there's a God-shaped vacuum inside of all of us that only God can fill. Would you come to Jesus? Come and surrender. Come in faith. Come and receive him. Come and sing with the songwriter. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in to stay. Cast down every idol. Cast out every foe. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Bring Christ into your life. Just trust and, and, and be willing to follow him. And, and, and many right now would say, I did that and I'm really glad. Amen? Amen. And those of us who have, we just have this little time on earth to do what? To stockpile our stuff or to serve the Savior? May God awaken in us a, a deeper love for Christ, a willingness to say, Jesus, I'll be your hands and feet. I don't have it all together. None of us do. I love this community. And isn't it a joy to see what God's doing? And don't think that we only can take top-notch people we're broken people, fallen people, but God has a plan and a purpose for you. And if you give your life to Christ, he's got all kinds of great things in store for you. The will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. So you can keep living Burger King, have it your way, to your pearl, or you can have it his way, the story of Christ within the story of Christmas. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for the power of your word to remind and awaken and refresh us and excite us about Jesus. Lord, may you be as real to us today as you were.
to Joseph and Mary as they held you in their arms. Thank you for giving us the word so we can ponder anew what the Almighty can do. We praise you for our Savior, and may his life be seen in our lives. May some give their lives to Christ this morning. Pray, Father, as Christmas Eve comes, that you will bless that time in Jesus' name. Amen. Austin, come and welcome our guests. Or not our guests. Actually, our family. Good morning, Riverstone Church family. Thank you for that word, Pastor Tom. Though we as pastors want to send you off grounded in truth, uh, I feel the need to correct just one point that Pastor Tom left you with. Jersey is a land flowing with milk and honey. <laughs> Jersey is the place to be. Come on up. Amen? <laughs> it is our joy this morning to welcome new members into our congregation. Church membership is a vital part of our life together as a local church. And it's not like uh, membership as you would know it in the common sense uh, at, say, a country club where you pay your dues and you can simply just enjoy the benefits and, and with no obligation to establish yourself in any relationships or have any commitments to others. Church membership is very different and very special. Church membership consists of the, the formal relationship that is established between a local church body and its individuals in order to, to faithfully fulfill all New Testament expectations for life together in a local church body. So through a set of, of mutual defined public commitments, we bind ourselves to a specific group of Christians in a way that we are primarily accountable to and cared for by that particular body. And church membership defines this body and our commitments to one another. So this morning, we're happy to welcome seven new members. You can come on over here. Chris Abercrombie. Josh and Katie Leon, and their two sons, Levi and Lincoln. Paul and Beth Daka, their daughter, Becca Daka, and Evan Vittoriano. All seven of them have fulfilled all their requirements for church membership. They have given a credible profession of faith in Christ Jesus. And they each have, uh, support, have agreed to support and abide by our statement of faith here at the church, our covenant, and all other guiding, uh, governing documents here at Riverstone Church. Now, in order for us to receive them into membership, I would ask that if you are a member at Riverstone Church here with us this morning, please stand. Will you, church family, receive these brothers and sisters into membership in this congregation and commit to gather with, love, disciple, and care for them as such? If so, say, by God's grace, we will. By God's grace, we will. You may be seated.
Church family, I would encourage you to get to know our, our new members here and, and encourage them, get to know them and their families as they are now a part of you, the living body of Riverstone Church, and you to them. I'm going to close us all in a word of prayer. But before I do, if you're not a member of Riverstone Church, I would encourage you to consider uh, attending the next round of classes in the new year. And for everyone to consider, membership starts with first tasting and experiencing the living body among us here at Riverstone Church. So what better time than this Christmas Eve, this upcoming Friday, to invite friends, family, neighbors, co-workers to come taste and see the goodness of God among us at Riverstone Church. We, we printed these invitations, these cards that are on uh, in the lobby, on the, on the tables, and you can get them at the welcome desk. Please take several of these. We'd love to see these cleared out by the end of this morning. We made these so that you can, can have an opportunity to engage and invite um, those near you in proximity or near and dear to your heart. So uh, please take some on the way out and invite um, some, some, some new people to come experience the life here together at Riverstone Church. Welcome new members, and let me say a word of prayer to God. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the new covenant purchased in your blood, binding us by faith in you together with one another and in you forever and ever. Lord, children of God, brothers and sisters, heirs of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ, we thank you. And we thank you for bringing together this particular church body here at Riverstone. Thank you for the years that you have grown us. Thank you for these new members, oh God. We pray that you continue to bless them and keep them. Keep us all in unity, in truth, in love. Lord, that as each one of us continues to work according to the grace given to us, you would bless us and grow us in, in unity and to the full maturity of Christ Jesus. Lord, that you would be glorified among us. So bless us, keep us, make your face to shine upon us, Lord, that as we move out from here throughout the week, you, your ways would be made, through, made known through us and our life together. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please join me in welcoming our new members. Amen. Thank you. And have a good week. Grab some cards. See you all on Christmas Eve.